April 18th, 2007, there were three Christian evangelical missionaries that went to work like they did every day in the middle of the country of Turkey. They were missionaries there in Turkey who had a Bible publishing company. They translated the Bible for the people in Turkey to hear the gospel in their own language, and they were there like they were every day. And yet, this day was a little different. A number of men show up to the door, knock on the door. Turkish young men knock on the door and ask to learn more about the Bible that they've heard about, ask to learn more about the gospel of Jesus that they've heard about, and they let them in. But they had no intention to learn anything about the gospel. Come to find out they were actually uh, Turkish Islamic extremists, and they tied these three men up, and they tortured them, and they killed them simply because they named the name of Jesus. One lady escaped. One of the wives of these men escaped from the office and went to the authorities and told them what had happened. This made national news. It made world news. And it took the Turkish officials nine years to do anything about these three Christians that were murdered in cold blood. It's hard to imagine, right? Christianity Today got wind of this story and met with this wife. And the wife proceeded to tell them that they had no regrets, no regrets about their gospel ministry in Turkey over the last year that they had seen countless people come to believe the gospel of Jesus. And she said this to the reporter. She said, although there is deep pain that I couldn't even imagine trying to explain. I see my family and our gospel ministry in Turkey as victorious, as something that we are called to do. We did what God had called us to do. It's hard to imagine living life in that wife's shoes, isn't it? It's hard to imagine the pain that she feels But the perspective on her Christian life and the mission that God has left us in this world is 100% right on. You see, right down the road in Turkey, about 2,000 years before this event in 2007, there stood a church on the west banks of Asia Minor in Turkey, 2,000 years before where the church was persecuted little city, or the larger city of Smyrna, present-day Izmir, Turkey, 2,000 years before Jesus has a message to this persecuted church, to this suffering church where martyrdom is happening like it did in 2007. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verses 8 through 11, only four verses today, and we were going to look at this persecuted, suffering church in the first century, and they were suffering and they were persecuted simply because they were believers in Jesus, and Jesus is going to have some words for this persecuted church, this church that's also going to suffer more and more under Roman rule. You know, as you turn there, it's interesting, the more things change, the more things stay the same, right? From that time in the first century all the way to now, there has been persecution in areas of the world 
with the church of Jesus Christ. In 2023, I didn't know if you knew this, but one in seven Christians worldwide were at high risk, meaning the impending death could be coming their way. Not what we experienced. 360 million people lived under persecution, live under persecution right now. There were 5,000 Christians last year on record. There's more than that, likely. 5,600 Christians killed in this world on record. About 5,000 of them last year happened in Africa in the sub-Saharan areas where Boko Haram and Islamic extremists exist. Christians being killed in our world today. I don't know about you, but I feel completely disconnected from that. That seems so foreign to me in the experience of living in the day that I live in. We had a bunch of guys over at my house this week around a fire in the backyard talking about our faith, talking about marriage. And the worst thing that could happen in that scenario was my neighbor who doesn't like people parking on his grass. That's the worst thing that could have happened that night. I got neighbors coming over saying, hey, it's really cool that you have your students over to study the Word of God. You have men over. You have people over. That's the kind of experience I have, and it's the kind of experience you have. You come here the, on a Sunday morning, and what's your experience? Is there anybody, is the government or the state or anybody saying, hey, those Christians are meeting. Let's go there. We, we exist in such relative freedom compared to this. We're so insulated, and that's not a bad thing. We ought to be grateful for that, right? I'm grateful that I can have guys over to my house that we can meet here. That is a blessing from the Lord. And yet there is subtle alienation, is there not? You ever felt it? You ever felt the subtle alienation from the world? Try being a pastor when you're playing on the golf course and 14 holes go by and then you get to the conversation. Hey, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor and there's apologies for some. There's isolation from others. They don't want to talk to you. And other people just, you're like, man, this is going to be a longer conversation. They want to go to lunch after, and I'm trying to hit my shot. (laughs) Just let me be. You you understand that, though, with neighbors. When you get up on a Sunday morning in your your Sunday best, or or, or not, and and you come to church, (laughs) and you get the look from the neighbor, and maybe this afternoon you didn't get the invite from the people down the street in the fun party because, "Eh, I don't know about those Christians. So there's subtle things that happen to us, nothing like the persecution of the early church. But I know a a number of people in this room that aren't from this insulated Bible Belt kind of place, at least for now, that have literally up and moved their families here so they could live out their faith in a freer way in this country than then they had. It's coming. And as you look at Revelation 2, remember last week we started this study, right? We started this study in chapters 2 and 3 of these seven churches that Jesus has a word for, that he knows them. It's like we said last week, it's a report card or a performance review, like how they're doing and their faith. And you see all the way through this, you see the commendation of the churches minus a few of them. You also see the correction of the church through this, the different churches, which there's much to learn from, like what would Jesus say today about our church? And then there's these commands or these, here's how you change your ways and I'm here for you. And we come this morning 
to the church in Smyrna. Last week we looked at the church in Ephesus, the church you would know more about from the New Testament, and we found that Jesus saw them. He saw their toil and their labor, literally that they broke a sweat serving Jesus in their church and the saints. We saw their moral and doctrinal holding of the line in their sexually immoral culture. See also today, and yet Jesus, with all those commendations, he said what? But I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost love for me. And we said that oftentimes in a church that's doctrinally faithful and morally faithful and works hard like C3, what ends up happening is we forget why we're serving. We forget the love of Christ is the motivation for our service. And so we get curmudgeony. Remember the guy? We become church curmudgeons and we get bitter and we need some grease for a squeaky wheel. We get bitter at other people. We look around and say, they're not serving like me. And we hold these doctrinal and moral lines, maybe not because we love Jesus, not because we love the truth that God reveals, that God is truth, but because we hold to a body of information and we like to smack people around with that. And so Jesus says, you've lost your motivation. You've lost your first love. Return to me. Return, remember, repent, and I'm right here to take your cold hearts, your orthodox cold hearts, and bring them back to where you once were. Otherwise, here's the scary part. Jesus said he would take the lampstand from the dead but orthodox church. That's scary. And so we come today to this different kind of church right down the road, 35 miles from Ephesus. If you, if you got a study Bible, if you look at the order of these churches that we're going in, it just traces the Roman road from basically the ocean, which is closest to where John is, who's writing this, and the island of Patmos, and it just traces from um, Ephesians to Smyrna all the way around this Roman road. And so that's how we get to the second church in Smyrna. And today we see this suffering church. Note something as we read this. Do I see any correction? Answer that question. No, you see encouragement to endure. You see Jesus saying, I see you. I know you. I know all the problems that you have. I'm with you. So here's the reality. Everyone goes through pain. Everyone goes through trial. Everyone goes through suffering of some sort here. It's persecution for your faith. But we all go through tribulation where something happens and the weight of that tribulation squeezes us. And the question is, what comes out? Right? And so Jesus is going to encourage this church in their tribulation, in their pain. And here are the questions I want to answer today. Where do we put that pain in tribulation, C3? How do we work through it? And what hope do we have beyond what we can see right in front of us? I don't know about you, but when I have trouble and tribulation in my life, it's like I have horse blinders and that's all I see. And Jesus is going to give them encouragement to look beyond. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Let me read it. Back of your Bible, last book of the Bible, a couple pages in. Book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Look at what Jesus has to say to this church and to the angel or messenger. When we see angel in that text, we often think of a heavenly being, but sometimes the Greek word is actually messenger. And so we think all the way through these churches, it's not heavenly being, but it's to the pastor or the leaders of the church. 
to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That's Jesus. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Love that. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's rough. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Look at that promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The one who conquers, it's Jesus. Excuse me, that's the people of God who endure will not be hurt by the second death. Look at verses 8 and 9 there. Let me just tell you a little bit about Smyrna, kind of like I did last week about Ephesus. This is a city, not, it's a harbor city, so we're still close to the coast of Asia Minor. But it's one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient world. Its topography is a, it's a beautiful place. It's called the crown of Asia, Asia because of its beauty. I think we have a pic uh, here of what it might look like. You see the harbor and the city and the amphitheater here. Something other factoid about um, Smyrna is we, it's believed that Homer, the guy who wrote the Iliad, one of the oldest things, stories we have is, is from Smyrna. It's the only city that's really still a city there. The other ones are, this one was run down, but there's still a city there. None of the other churches have that. But the religious practices is where we need to hone in. The religious practice, the, there was nature worship, I think, because it was such a beautiful place. Um, but there was a large Jewish population in Smyrna, and so Judaism was a huge thing in Smyrna. But the primary religious practice of the city of Smyrna, run by the Romans, if, and, and maybe you know where I'm going, was emperor cult worship. That whoever the Caesar is, you had to worship him. And what they would do is really interesting. To prove that you were a loyal citizen of Rome, you had to burn incense in front of a Roman official. Incense that was deemed worship to the Caesar. The Caesar at the time was Domitian, the turn of the century. And so part of your responsibility as a citizen so that the government knew that you were faithful and you weren't going to do something wrong, was that you burn incense. You worship the Caesar. And if you did that, they would give you a certificate. So anytime the Roman official would ask you, where's your certificate, you had the approval of Rome. And yet, if you didn't have a certificate and you wouldn't worship and bow down and say, Caesar is Lord, because you wouldn't burn incense, look at the because you wouldn't burn incense, you would, could be burned at the stake. Like, you're not going to burn incense? We'll burn you down. That was the scenario for the Christians who call Jesus Lord in the first century. Not only did they have to deal with the Romans who made them worship the Caesar, they also had the Jews. Remember the whole New Testament? The Jews didn't like the Christians much, did they? They ran them out of cities. They persecuted them. They killed them. And in this city, the Jews helped the Romans. And so here's the reality of living in Smyrna. If you were a part of this church, 
both the secular persecution from the Romans and the religious persecution, by the way, which is always as bad, from the Jews, made Smyrna a city, one guy said, with all the ingredients of a hostile place for Christians in the first century. Look at verse 9. And that will help us make sense out of how Jesus describes himself. I'm the first and the last, meaning God is eternal, alpha and omega, but also I died like many of you are going to die. But I rose again, even in the description of himself. He's identifying with these people who are suffering. And look at verse 9. I love this. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know. Isn't that what you're looking for sometimes when you're hurting? You need somebody to say, I see you. I know And here's the Savior who has died and rose again, sending a message to this church that says, I see you. I know what you're going through. What are they going through? Three things they list. Tribulation, the squeezing. It could be persecution or even broader, just general trials. Tribulation or persecution. The second thing that you see there is poverty. Poverty comes out of the suffering and the persecution. Because nobody's going to go to your business if you're a Christian businessman or Christian businesswoman, and buy things for you, and they know you're a Christian, and they can go over here. And so they were poor because they were persecuted, and also they were slandered. Look at who they were slandered by. Check it. They were slandered by the Jews, and what we think is going on here is, if, if you caught what I said about emperor worship, you would have a question and say, well, well Jews aren't going to worship the emperor. So why are they okay? Domitian gave them an exception clause. Here's why, probably. They weren't persecuted. They didn't have to worship the emperor, probably because there were so many of them, and there was an economic issue there. They'd also previously rioted, and so they don't want political unrest. And so the Jews of Smyrna had an exemption to not be persecuted, but not the Christians. They didn't get the same exemption. And what it looks like the Jews did is they would go to the Roman officials. Think about the hypocrisy of this. I've got an exemption. I don't want you to have one because you're a follower of Jesus. And they would go to the Roman officials and breathe lies to them so that they would not have the exemption to worship. A lot of background. Tribulation, poverty, slander. Ever been slandered before? It's not a great feeling. But look at verse 9. Who's behind some of this persecution? What does it say? The evil one, the devil. And he calls the Jews the synagogue of Satan. We tend to think about secular persecution that we see. We tend to think about it, man, I know that's from the evil one. It's from man and their heart and their flesh, but it's from the evil one. But also, there is religious persecution that is also from the evil one. This is Jesus speaking of his own heritage and saying they're false. It's not in the text that says they're not Jews, and you're like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean they're not ethnic Jews. They are physically Jews, but the New Testament says that it's not about a physical relationship. It's not about physical. It's about spiritual. Their relationship to Jesus, they don't have one, so they're not Israel. So they're not true Jews. That's what he's saying here. It's always interesting that religious persecution is just as demonic. It's just as demonic as secular persecution. 
I'll tell you this, in the last 10 years in our culture, even as a pastor within an evangelical framework, I would say my observation is the people on the outskirts of faith are, more, are persecuting the evangelical church more than the outside world that doesn't seem to care that much. It's coming. But look at this beautiful thing that Jesus says. You're, you're going through tribulation. You're going through poverty. You're being slandered. You're poor. But what does he say? But really, spiritually speaking, a real reality is you are rich. You are spiritually rich. Chuck Swindoll, who always has a great way of painting pictures, he paints this picture, and I just want to share it with you, of this church right here. He says this, imagine yourself sitting amongst the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a Sunday morning, a small lamp-lit room, not like this, houses the remaining beaten and beleaguered church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now features obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or executed. Some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning to pray, sing hymns to God, and read from Holy Scriptures. Think about all the other things we think about on Sunday morning. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, your pastor unrolls a scroll, picture this, and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear who sent the message. The risen Lord himself. The entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins his commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Do you think that that is a word of encouragement that they needed to hear? Is it a word of encouragement in your trial and your tribulation that you need to hear? And maybe you go, well, how are we rich? I'm just going to start in one simple place. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says it this way, context of that chapter is generosity toward God. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, C3, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Do you know the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon us? Do you know the what the Bible calls the treasure, the treasure that you have in the good news of Christ, that he died in your place. He died for your sins, something you couldn't do. He's forgiven your sins, and he's purchased a place in heaven for you. He gives you reward. He's made you rich spiritually. That'd be an incredible encouragement to the first century church going through suffering. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. If you know Jesus, you are rich. Whether you are physically rich, whether you're going through trial and tribulation for your faith or other, you are rich. Remember that. Here's your first thought. Here's your first truth today. Being rich toward God may result in you being poor and persecuted by man. 
That's what the first thing this text is teaching us. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I've told you about a couple of trips that I've taken to Russia. You're going, how'd you get to Russia? Well, a few years ago, it wasn't like this. Slavic Gospel Association connected our church with a number of Russian churches to partner with, St. Petersburg and beyond, Moscow. And so our church would take a number of trips each year to train pastors. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I got to take two trips. I got to take high school kids to Russia. Parents, what do you think? You want to send your kid to Russia? And the observations, I think, you know, you think about when you take a trip like that, how are we going to contribute? Man, we left and go, I don't know exactly all the ways in which we contributed to you guys, but you contributed to us. Our translator, or one of our translators' names was Luna, and she told the story over lunch, like the first day we were there, of what it was like to live in communist Russia. Her family had land, and they were believers in Jesus. KGB came, and she said, I watched them kill my father and my grandfather as a little kid. And I would think that she would be a bitter woman. woman had more joy than anybody there. Just oozed out of her. Someone who had been through deep persecution. When you look around at these Christians and just observe where they live and how they live, even though it wasn't technically communist Russia, what I found out in about, what was it, 2007 or 8 when I went, that Putin was still in power even though he wasn't in power. And they didn't live, they, they didn't have means even then. Most of these Christians would eat lentils at every meal. They prepared us borscht soup, which was apparently a delicacy to them. There's a reason there's not Russian restaurants around, y'all. It was rough, but it was, for them, it was a delicacy. They wanted to give us their best. They were poor, and yet they were rich. Do you know who slandered the evangelical Christians in Russia the most? It was not the state. It was the Russian Orthodox Church. We went into one of their churches, and we left, and they said, do you, do you know who the biggest persecutor of the church in Russia is? And I did, everybody just said, I'm sure the government. No. The Russian Orthodox clergy are the biggest persecutors of Christians in Russia. And it's so far from us. We don't feel much of that kind of persecution, but for them, they were rich toward God, and yet they were poor and persecuted. We don't feel that but we do feel some subtle alienation. And in a post-Christian world, and I'm not just trying to scare you, okay? I don't know what's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20 years with our kids. I fear that. But we do now live in a post-Christian world. And we're probably not reclaiming that Christian world effectively. Not that it ever really was. But you clearly live in a post-Christian world. Even in Magnolia, Texas, even here, even though we're insulated, it's a post-Christian world. And so there is more coming. Are you willing to suffer a bit for your faith? Let me give you some examples. When the government takes our tax break, are you still going to give? That wasn't a plug for giving on Sunday morning. But seriously, now there's a cost to it more. I don't get a tax break from it. I don't either. 
What are you going to do then? Are you going to show up to church when people look at you differently because you're a Christian? Are you going to meet with the gathered church when people know you're leaving your house on your Sunday best? Are you going to do that? Or are you going to shrink back? In your jobs, when you have to affirm things and have a certificate of sorts, that you affirm certain things in the culture. And if you don't affirm, you're going to lose your job. What are you going to do then? Are you willing to be named amongst Christians in the future that are considered a moral threat to society because of their beliefs, because of what they say? Are you going to bail me out of prison if I get thrown in it? Are you going to come visit me? Or your, or your kids, kids, your pastor one day? Are you going to worry about being seen with the Christians? That's a post-Christian world. I don't know what's going to happen. I just know that the Bible says it's going to go from bad to worse until Jesus comes. We're in the book of Revelation, remember? Here's the deal. If we live for Christ, there will absolutely and is spiritual reward. But there's also some trouble. Here's the question. Where's God at in all that trouble? You ever ask that question? Where's God at in this trouble, in my tribulation, in my slander? Where's God at? Is he AWOL? Or is he using it in some way? How do you deal with your honest fears about potential for what I just described in the future? How do you deal with it? Glad you asked. Look at verse 10. Let me just give you the punchline. Let me just give you the second truth. And I really want you to marinate on this. And it may be the longest point I've ever had, and I was trying to cull out words from it, and I couldn't, because I think every word's important in this. When God's sovereign testing comes. See, it's not just man. It's not just the evil one. It's God's. When God's sovereign testing comes your way, let faith and the risen Christ topple your fear of fallen man. Leave that up there for a bit if you don't mind. What do you see in verse 10? What does Jesus say to this church in the midst of tribulation and slander and poverty? What does he say? Don't fear. And you're like, well, easy for you to say, right? I'm here. There's death on the horizon. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. So there's a sense in which this is prophetic of about what's about to happen to them, or at least some of them. Don't fear. And they're probably going, what am I going to suffer? And look at it. It says who's behind it. It is the evil one. It is man. But understand something. Look at the next phrase. The next phrase in, in verse 10 says, that you may be tested. Let me ask you a question. Does God tempt you? Does he tempt you? Does he want you to fall? The Bible's really clear in James 1. God does not test you. But you give way when you give in. Excuse me. God does not tempt you, but you give way when the deceitfulness of sin comes and you give in to being tempted. Or te I can't get them right. Help me out. Y'all figure it out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <sighs> to, I like doing, you know, the 
Different words the same, but sometimes it throws me on a loop. God does not tempt you, but He does test you. Testing of our faith produces endurance. All through the New Testament, you see God testing. See also Job. God will test you. He will test you to see. He will test you to grow you. He ultimately allows the evil one, allows men, even here in Smyrna, even unto death. I know that's a lot to put together. We can talk about it. But ultimately, God's in charge. Aren't you glad? If he wasn't, we'd have bigger problems, wouldn't we? He's sovereign in the testing. He's sovereign there. I'm happy to sit down and talk to you about that. And whatever you're going through, Jesus says, don't fear what you're going to suffer from the devil, and yet I'm testing you. Be faithful, even unto death. Some of these people are going to die. I can't put it any better than 1 Peter chapter 4, a church that was looking at persecution in the face. Peter writes to, remember Peter, the guy who ran away, didn't want to be named amongst the apostles and persecuted? Later on, he says this, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, though something strange were happening to you. I'd feel strange. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may be able to rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, see also Smyrna, see also slander, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief and an evildoer or as a meddler, meaning... Hey, don't blame God if you've sinned against him and done all these things. Don't put that suffering that you have because of that on God. Yet if anyone suffers, note this, anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, Christian. In verse 19, here's the action. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while, while doing good. Man, we all have fears, don't we? We all have fears. What are your fears? What decisions in life do you make out of sinful fear? See, sinful fear is a fear that lacks faith. That's why Jesus puts this together. Don't fear. Be faithful. Have faith. Trust the risen Christ. It's not, it's, it's, it's not confidence in yourself. It's confidence in Him, the first and the last, the dead who's come alive. It's faith in the risen Christ. You know why we like reading books and biographies like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or people like him? Because it's encouraging it's encouraging because amidst people who faded away, in the midst, for him, Nazi persecution, what did he do? It wasn't though he didn't have fears, but he stood. And so we look at people's life like that and go, what would I do? I hope I, would f I wouldn't fear. I hope my faith in the risen Christ would topple all those fears that well up in me. And the fears were in some ways, in a human way, legitimate because they would die for their faith. And yet here's a guy who stood when most people didn't, and we go, that's what I want to be like. 
We all have fears. It's interesting because this word tribulation is not just about Christian persecution. It's broader than that. And so I at least want to address that, particularly because it feels so, this feels so far off for us. I want you to think about the trouble in your life. I want you to think about the trials that you go through, the pains that you go through. I want you to think about the health problems that you have or someone close to you has and all the fears you have in that. I want you to think about the brokenness of relationship, whether it's your spouse or whether it's your grown kids, the weight of financial responsibility. Ladies, the fears that you have about your family. Men, the fears you have about financial security for your family, for your job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can keep going. What's your tribulation? What's your weight? The message here is have faith in the risen Christ over the fear that you have for fallen man or other. I need to hear that. So here's the question. In the midst of the unknowns of life and the fears of life, how can I entrust my soul to a faithful creator today? Note something. There's no correction. See that? Ephesus, there was correction. Other churches, there's correction. This church, there's no correction for this church. In the midst of persecution and trial, Jesus encourages them to persevere. But if you're there, you're, you're probably asking this question too. Beyond, where's God, which we answered, you're probably also asking, where's the ultimate payoff for me doing this? Where's the payoff? What's the payoff? Look at the promises that you see, particularly at the end of verse 10 and verse 11 that are to come. I'd say it this way. Here's your third truth. We have to embrace Jesus' promise of eternal life and heavenly reward today in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trouble Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says, if you remain faithful even unto death, what's going to happen? I'll give you the crown of life. When you think of a crown, you probably think of royalty, right? Think of somebody who's born into it and they get a crown. They didn't earn it. This is not that kind of crown. This is the athlete's crown. This is the laurel wreath that the athlete wins when he wins the race and the games that they would play back then. And it came from endurance blood, sweat, and tears, perseverance, trial. It's the laurel wreath. And this is one of five crowns that you see in the New Testament that the Lord offers us for endurance, the crown of life. So there's, let me say it this way, there's heavenly reward coming, the crown of life. And also look at verse 11. He says to this church, he who has an ear, let him hear. You will not be hurt by the second death. Do you see that? Like, what in the world is the second death? If you go to the end of Revelation, the second death is the lake of fire. It's hell. End of Revelation also says that it's reserved for those who reject Christ, not believers in Christ. It also says at the end of Revelation that the second death, hell, the lake of fire, has 
no power over the Christian. None. Because he gives us eternal life in his presence. It's a pretty worthwhile thing to endure for, to look at in the future, even today when you're looking at all the things that are trouble and tribulation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it this way, another beautiful truth for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, Don't lose heart, Corinthians. Don't lose heart, C3. Though the outer self is wasting away, feeling that, inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, doesn't feel that way, this light momentary affliction, there's meaning to it. It's preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, when I think of the junk in my life, and you think of the junk in your life, it doesn't seem light, does it? Light, it feels heavy. It feels overwhelming. But in the end, when you're able to look back from heaven, back and the eternal weight of what that will be, the eternal weight of glory, by comparison, it's lightweight. And maybe you spent much of your life in affliction, in different ways, and you're going, it doesn't, none of it seems light to me, but in view of the weight of glory, it will be light. And that's what you have to look forward to. John Piper says it this way, don't waste your suffering. And he doesn't say that lightly, don't waste your suffering, that there's meaning in your suffering. It's preparing you for glory. And that's a hard message, but there's meaning in your suffering. And I know, I know the conversations with God. Where's, what's the point? Why? Why not this way? It's a lot more comfortable. It's preparing you for glory. It's growing you today. What this whole text is telling us is if you follow Jesus, there will be trouble, there will be testing, but there will also be tremendous reward. That's, that's the point. One thing I didn't tell you about Smyrna. The name Smyrna means myrrh. What do you know about myrrh? It's a sap-like resin. I think we have a picture of it here. Sap-like resin that comes out of cuts in the bark of a camaphora tree. You see the chunks made into the oils. I'm sure they got an essential oil like this. Wise men bring it to Jesus after his birth. And in the first century, the most common use for myrrh is the embalming of dead bodies. It was associated with death. And here's the thing. For myrrh to be effective, for myrrh's fragrance to be brought out, it had to be broken. It had to be crushed. Fitting name, right? For a city whose Christian inhabitants experience the crushing and even some of them, death. Fifty years after John writes this, the pastor of the church in Smyrna 
Perhaps you've heard his name. Polycarp. He's one of the early church fathers who wrote. He was discipled by the apostle John. He was the pastor of this church under Roman rule and Jewish persecution. Polycarp wouldn't burn incense. And they came and found him. They came and found him, and they said, Recant. Say that Caesar is Lord. Recant that Christ is Lord. And his famous line at his death, that the historians of his day quote, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So they burned him at the stake. While it may not be in the cards, y'all, what's probably not in the cards for you to burn at the stake like Polycarp or suffer like this, I don't know. It's probably not in the cards for you to suffer that way. And yet, You're not going to be insulated, and we're not insulated from being broken down. You need to know that being rich toward God may mean that God's going to use tribulation in your life to break you down, to make your fragrance for Him beautiful. You've got to trust that that breaking down, as we sang earlier, that the firm foundation stands, that he won't leave us or forsake us in, his, in our testing. Remember, Jesus was tested by the Father as well. And we have to have the perspective, perspective that crushing will happen, but there's promise for reward. Your takeaway today is simply this. Whatever comes your way, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Stay the course, C3. Like the church in Smyrna, he knows your troubles. Do you believe that? He knows your troubles. He's been tested himself. He's there with you through your fears. He's there with you, calling you to trust him, the risen Christ. And he's promised you reward and eternal life. Stay the course, C3. That's the message of today's church. Let me pray.